When I'm having a good hair day, that's when I'm my best self. I feel good. I look great. And I will say, painting sulfate-free rose water collection is a part of that. The Rose Water Collection. It feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rose water because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. I'm Hugh Atchison. I'm a chef, a restaurateur, a traveler, and now I'm the host of The Passenger. People ask me all the time, you know, what's that list of places to go in this city, in that city? And this show is dedicated to that idea, immersing yourself in that culture and finding out what's intriguing and what we think about the future of that place as a visitor, as a passenger. The first season of The Passenger premieres February 27th. Subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. Uh, Caroline, quick question for you. Mm -hmm. Have you ever played matchmaker with friends or acquaintances or family members or just two people on the street, <laughs> whomever. You people on the bus stop, you look attractive. Why don't you get together? No, I don't think I have. No? I don't know. I feel like I would not be good at it. Now, I, I know that you were joking about two people on the street or on the bus, uh-huh. uh, but actually, in fact, one day on my way home from work, I was riding the train and an older gentleman tried to play matchmaker with me and a, and a strange man. And by That's strange, awkward. I mean like a stranger I didn't know. He, he had a nice face. Uh, <laughs> But it was one of the most awkward instances. This older guy was like, you two belong together. I can see it. We Maybe both, he could see something you couldn't. I know. We both looked up from our from our books, our <laughs> respective publications. And and then I ran out once we got to my stop because I'm, you know, what, what are you going to do at that point? I don't know. Blush probably is what I would have done. Actually, that did that same thing happened to me. I was in England and I was at a cafe and I was reading a book and like drinking my coffee. And uh, this waitress comes over. She's like, oh, are you American? Of course, she obviously had a British accent, but I'm not even going to do it. Like, hello. Hello. Hello, governor. Are you American? <laughs> See, there you go. And uh, I was like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, he over there, that guy, that he's American, too. And we both, it was the same thing. We both look up from our books and we're like, we both have this look on our face like, oh God, please stop. And she's like, you got, you really, do you know him? You know, he's American. Do you know him? He's also American. You guys should really know each other. You should really sit together. And we just look at each other and just go back to our books. And now he's your boyfriend. No? Nope. Oh. Nope. Well, clearly these uh, random folks that we've run into in our lives not good matchmakers no i uh i've never played matchmaker with friends that i can think of really i kind of avoid it i feel like no. i w- i wouldn't be that great and then if it doesn't work out it's egg on your face well it's egg on your face but also you might be putting a wrench into your friend group right so but if i was to tell you that you could be paid thousands of dollars to potentially match people up. Would you think it be, twice about it? I could be inspired. Okay. 
Well, that's this is a very long way of telling our <laughs> listeners that we're talking about matchmakers today. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my mind, when I think of matchmaker, the first thing I think of is the song from Fiddler on the Roof that goes a little something like, I won't sing it for you. <laughs> I was so ready. Your eyes beamed there for a moment. <laughs> nope, I'm not going to sing it today because I am recovering from a cold. So sure, I don't sure think you are. <laughs> and that's my excuse. Um, but we're talking more in the podcast about professional matchmakers because it seems like, I don't know if we have many reality TV fans out there, but there was a certain show on a certain network by the certain name of Millionaire Matchmaker. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I love it. Once that came out, every it was matchmakers everywhere. Yeah, I love I love the show. I, I, the only reason I can't watch it is because there's too many commercials, but I do love it. And she sets up some pretty nasty people. I don't mean like the the couple is nasty. I mean like she sets people up with some nasty people. Like some of her millionaires are really big jerks. But again, as we'll get to in the podcast, sometimes it's not, you know, part of the matchmaking process is finding the diamond in the rough. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, you know, a lot of times with these, these smarmier men who she might, uh, Patty Singer, the millionaire matchmaker might, uh, encounter, really what they need is some coaching and she'll, you know, they'll usually go through some kind of, at least a minimal metamorphosis yeah. of realizing that, you know, maybe, well, the flock anyway. of seagulls haircut is over, sir. <laughs> yeah. Just move on. <laughs> so before we get too much into our into our secret and now not so secret love of uh, millionaire matchmaker, guilty pleasure, <laughs> let's talk about the matchmaking industry. Because yes, I did not realize this, but in the United States, matchmaking is a lucrative industry. Yeah, uh, like a $250 million industry. Uh, this is according to the Matchmaking Institute. Who knew there was such a thing? Um, but according to them, there's 1,500 matchmaking professionals in the U.S. Well, that was in 2006, so gosh, gee golly, there's probably a whole lot more There are probably more, yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting that the industry within and without is dominated by women, both the matchmakers themselves and the clients. Which used to not be the case on the client side. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, the reason why we ended up doing this matchmaking episode was because of an article that was published a couple weeks ago on the Daily Beast talking about this new trend in the matchmaking industry where they're catering to wealthy middle-aged and older women because it used to be that matchmaker professional matchmakers i should say catered specifically to wealthy dudes right but you know as demographics have changed uh and more women are in higher power higher power jobs whatever it it becomes harder to meet that magical someone apparently particularly if you're in new york Yes. Like that kept coming up over and over again that people in New York are spending a lot of money finding the right person. And you know what? Side note, like totally derailing. I have talked to friends who have lived in New York and are like, that's really hard to find a date, even for, you know, like average people, not. So imagine what it's like if you're, you know, Martha Stewart or somebody. Well, don't they call it the loneliest city in the world? You're just surrounded by people. I will now. But no one to date. I guess I will. Uh, But speaking of New York, it is the number one center for uh, matchmaking, 
uh, the matchmaking industry, this most lucrative market, followed by Los Angeles, Chicago, and coming in at number four, representing our our town in which we live, mm-hmm. Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Hot Atlanta, not so hot. Apparently all. the players are not playing. Or maybe the players are playing too much. The players just need some help playing. <laughs> um, and then finally, at number five, this is coming from, again, the Matchmaking Institute, which was the best source for industry data because it is a very niche industry, as you can imagine. Uh, but number five, Minneapolis-St. Paul. Yeah, all right. Maybe because it's cold. I wonder if that has anything to do with big cities, people stick to their own and don't really maybe branch out from their groups and get to know new people? Yeah, you're in uh, you're in a large urban area that's dominated by, you know, professionals who are working constantly, especially when you climb up into the into the higher ranks. The reason why professional matchmakers tend to cater to wealthier clientele is because they don't have time to go you know, on to to mixers or do speed dating or mm-hmm. try to go on date after date hoping to find someone who's a match. They need someone to kind of do that for them. And um, matchmakers today also attribute the popularity of online dating to the uh, lucrative industry that they're now in. Like a lot of people have turned from online dating, they're saying, to professional matchmakers because of Horror stories. Yeah, people are having all this bad luck in online dating, and so they don't want to leave things quite as up to chance as you tend to do with online dating, because even though you can go on these sites and like have percentages that match you, they don't take into account really how you are with people. So maybe there's the hope that with a matchmaker, someone who meets you in person, meets the other person, they can kind of get a better feel for who you would be better with. Right. Uh, and speaking of which, why don't we walk through the matchmaking process? And this is coming from uh, articles in the New York Times Magazine and New York Times profiling, in particular, Manhattan's most famous matchmaker, a lady named Janice Spindle, who's created a matchmaking empire. She sounds like a fairy godmother. Janice Spindle. Uh, yeah, Spindle will actually go out and actively recruit clients. She will see, and she she's one of those matchmakers who uh, caters specifically to men. And so she will in airports, in restaurants, at parties walk up to attractive men not wearing wedding rings who are m- probably in suits, meaning they've got the cash to spend on a matchmaker and uh, she she'll just go up and say, "Hey, hey fella, let me let me I'm, find you love. I'm not propositioning you. <laughs> yeah. No, really, I have a business deal. Yeah, she has to clarify that because they'll they'll look confused at first because she'll start talking about dating and romance and then notice that she has a wedding band on. And she has to be like, no, no, no. I want to help you find someone else. Right, not me. Well, there is that that high level matchmaking stuff, but sometimes they do it. They attract clients through ads or online searches or just word of mouth, kind of whatever gets their message out there. And there's usually some kind of initial consultation, just like you want when you get a fancy haircut, uh, just to find out what the people are looking for. Um, if if it goes forward, if things are positive, their membership dues exchanged, uh, maybe dates are culled from some bank of eligible young men and women. Yeah, and speaking of the membership fee, here's the thing about professional matchmakers. 
they cost a lot more than online dating will probably cost you. Mm-hmm. Um, to get into the Millionaire Matchmaker Club, and this is from the Wall Street Journal. I'm not just quoting <laughs> reality television. Uh, they interviewed Patty Singer about her empire that she has built. Um, um, uh, the base membership fee to get into the Millionaire Matchmakers Club costs forty thousand dollars a year, um, but for a little more of a representative price point for the industry wide, um, a third of matchmaker clients spend between three thousand and five thousand per year on dating services. That's still a lot. That's crazy. And I would just like to point something out that that seems a little insane to me. Yes, you might spend forty thousand dollars with Patty Sanger, but according according to Miss Sanger, you might spend two hundred grand on quote more personalized services and individualized attention. And so I'm just I'm just wondering, what what does that mean for the attention you're getting for forty grand? It's <laughs> a good question. Yeah, like what sets you apart on the forty grand level and the two hundred grand level? Like I would want forty grand to be pretty personal. Maybe two hundred grand guarantees you a cameo on, <laughs> on the show. Television. Yeah, maybe that pays all the insurance costs for the show. Um, the average professional matchmaker in New York City will earn not too bad of a living, seventy-eight grand per year. Although I guess in Manhattan terms, I don't. New York folks. I mean, that sounds like a lot of money down here in Atlanta, <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, perhaps that is. I mean, it's not obviously matchmakers. What I'm trying to say, make a lot less than their clients. Still, yeah. Well, Kristen mentioned that Daily Beast article a little bit ago, and Paula Froelich, who's the writer, actually called Stanger cantankerous in it, and she differentiates between Stanger, Miss Patty Stanger, and these this quote-unquote new breed of high-end matchmakers who run background checks on clients and dates and only actually accept about 25% of potential clients. They're, it's, it's very exclusive. Yeah, because you want to make sure that you're setting someone up with a quality person who, who matches them on different levels, who might not be, you know, someone who could be married or maybe they don't have the best of intentions for wanting to court a very wealthy person. Um, so getting back into the process, once they've plunked down their money, uh, what happens next? Because it's actually, it's a grooming process. A lot of times when you pay for a membership, it's a year-long process that you go through. Unless you're insanely lucky and on your first date, it's magic and then wedding bells a chime. Yeah, and then you can be on a Patty Sanger uh, special. <laughs> Perhaps. Matchmaker special. Yes. But a lot of times... Um, the matchmaker doubles as a sort of dating coach. Um, you might end up getting set up with a an image consultant if, say, you do have a flock of seagulls haircut. Yeah, don't don't be the guy who fights it. Don't fight the makeover. Get rid of the pleated pants. You know, some pe- some men look nice in pleated pants. Okay, so a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair. I can definitely relate to the confidence part because if my hair is doing something a little weird, something I don't want it to do, then I, I can't stop thinking about it the rest of the day. Oh my God, we've all been there. Pantene's Rosewater Collection feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rosewater because of its hydrating benefits. 
And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. Your hair doesn't look really great. Thank you. I actually worked in a place for a while that was very sensitive environmentally, and we weren't allowed to use shampoos that had sulfate in them. So that's something that I look for these days. And bonus, I love the way that my hair looks now. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. Okay, the new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman have never been more hilarious as America's favorite moms turned gangsters, Beth, Ruby, and Annie. Already this season, there have been some big twists and breathtaking surprises. The fans love it, and the critics do, too. Variety calls Good Girls addictive and audacious. Entertainment Weekly says it's just what you need, and Rotten Tomatoes certifies Good Girls 100% fresh. So, if you've missed any of the new season, get yourself online and stream it now. And Sundays on NBC, watch it live. There's sure to be big twists and huge surprises. So you'll want to enjoy your Good Girls experience in a spoiler-free zone. The all-new, all-hilarious season of Good Girls, Sundays on NBC and stream anytime. I don't know. Sometimes the makeovers go overboard. I'm just saying. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, because but even sometimes they will recommend cosmetic surgery. Yeah. That's but other okay, times, yeah. other times it's a little a bit of uh, physical training, some dieting. You might even do uh, an at-home makeover if you have kind of a, a scary <laughs> bachelor pad that is not very um, conducive to um, coupling. Um and then they also want to get more information on things like your family background, education, hobbies, interests, religious background, personal values and morals. If you want kids, that's important, you mm-hmm. know, uh, previous relationships and also relationship deal breakers. Yeah. Matchmakers get pretty quick into digging into not so much your future, but first let's figure out your past and how you got here. Mm-hmm. So kind of in a way, it's like the matchmaker is dating the client. Yeah, well, it's kind of when you hear about all the stuff they have to do, it's no wonder they charge so much money. Because they're basically like, if they're if they're taking you, if they're doing the, the Patty Sanger and they're taking you into a room of potential dates, they're basically your escort. You know, they're your party planner. Not, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot to handle. They're, they're kind of your personal consultant for quite a while. And obviously different kinds of matchmakers will provide different kinds of services, some of which will be a little more of that one-on-one intensive. Others will be just to literally set you up on one-on-one dates with people rather than escorting you to parties or to, um, almost like date auditions that you might see on reality television shows. Yeah, but one uh, one type of matchmaking we haven't talked about yet is the traditional kind. Yeah, let's talk about the traditional matchmaking because uh, I mentioned that one of the first things a matchmaker will find out about with a client are cultural and religious backgrounds. And sometimes they will refer that client to another matchmaking service if they are specifically, say, looking for an Orthodox Jewish wife or, you know, some kind of they're looking for a person to fit a specific um ethnic or religious or cultural model. Yeah, it was really interesting reading about all these different cultural, uh, these matchmaking traditions, because I had no idea. I kind of had an idea about uh, Hindu traditions just because my friend Deepa just got married. She did not, uh, she had a traditional Indian ceremony, but she wasn't 
It wasn't an arranged marriage, as you might think of a traditional Hindu ceremony. So I kind of knew about that, and it was a beautiful wedding and all that stuff, and I wore a sari, and it was great. Um, but yeah, so speaking of Hindu tra- tradition, marriage is a cornerstone of Hindu faith, and the family typically functions as the matchmaker. And in India in particular... This whole matchmaking thing has existed since the fourth century. Yeah, we've done an episode, a podcast a while ago on arranged marriages. And while this idea of paying someone, paying a professional matchmaker might seem kind of novel by our westernized standards, and even the idea of arranged marriage might seem kind of strange. In fact, around the world, 60% of marriages are arranged, and while you might not have someone like a Patty Singer coming in, obviously, and uh, saying what's what, uh, you, you'll still have either people, designated people in your community or family members who uh, serve as the matchmakers. And a lot of times it does focus around religious elements. You mentioned Hinduism, and then it also comes up, of course, with Orthodox Judaism, Right, yeah. Fathers uh, are traditionally selecting the grooms, and they might request assistance from a, oh, I hope I get this right, uh, shotkun? Shotkun. Oh, hey! Hey! What? I looked up my Yiddish pronunciations. Snap, I literally just snapped at her, because I am so impressed. Um, I looked up pronunciations, and I was like, oh, gosh, going blind into this. Um, so, yeah, and matchmakers do typically team up with rabbis to help pair up couples, and while the Torah dictates that these fancy individuals be paid, Kristen, shachans, thank you, uh, some of the Jewish matchmakers refuse payment, saying that really it's their divine calling and that they are meant to do this. Yeah, and uh, one little language lesson, um, especially because we did mention Fiddler on the Roof uh, and the matchmaker's character in Fiddler on the Roof, for anyone who's not familiar with this, her name is Yenta. And a lot of times people will use the word Yenta interchangeably with matchmaker. But in fact, that is incorrect. The Yiddish word Yenta merely refers to an older woman who who likes to gossip, whereas if you're talking about a matchmaker, the correct word is shahan for a man and shahanit for a woman. And any Yiddish-speaking listeners out there, I hope that I'm doing that. Yeah, just huh. feel free to record yourself saying it and sending it to us. <laughs> yes. We, uh, yeah. Um, well, there's also the Muslim tradition where aunties and other family members find potential mates in their social networks. Um, chaperone meetings uh, are typical, but key, both parties are allowed to give the thumbs down in accordance with the Quran. And this is because uh, a story in the Quran showed that Muhammad actually did spare a young woman from compulsory marriage. So just because maybe your auntie set you up with the boy down the street doesn't mean you have to give it a thumbs up. Right. Uh, but and it's I don't know. It's, it's interesting to see how with all of these major religions, obviously marriage plays such a central role in each of them. And this matchmaking tradition in their own different ways has gone back and then like stretches back in all of the their respective religious texts as well. Um, and so why we find it, I don't know, strange at all that people might look to an outside party to for help 
with finding their partner. Well, it feels it feels to me. I mean, as someone who that's definitely alien to my culture and the way that I was raised, like that just seems scary. You know, like oh my god, you're gonna bring in who for me to marry? Like who's to say I'm even gonna like this person? But statistically, arranged marriages last longer. That's true. Than than for love marriages. Right. It's between uh, 5 and 7% of arranged marriages will end in divorce. But you also have to take into account uh, cultural traditions and legalities that might strongly discourage or prevent you from dissolving a marriage. But anecdotally, though, if you read about um, arranged couples today, and we talk about this again in the uh, podcast that we did a while ago on arranged marriages, they, you know, there isn't an expectation of being madly in love when you're at the altar, but that a love will develop. You know, it's more of like a, a kindred intimacy rather than this passionate love that we, that we think about. And that whole notion of love marriage, as we've talked about before in the podcast, um, referencing, uh, marriage, a history by Stephanie Kuntz, which is a great book. If you ever want to check it out, um, she talks about how, the concept of marrying for love is so new comparatively mm-hmm. in our history. It only came about in the West starting in the 1700s. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, too, uh, with arranged marriages and, and matchmakers and everything, they're they're not just willy-nilly necessarily. Well, ideally, they're not willy-nilly just picking somebody for you. They are looking at your background, your family, your interests, you know, your religious beliefs and all that, and finding someone who lines up with that. And uh, Reva Seth, who's the author of the book First Comes Marriage, interviewed more than 300 women in arranged marriages and found that families play a huge role in matchmaking and the marriage and he said that it's not just about the two of you and I think that over the long term that takes a lot of pressure off the relationship yeah and um, scientific research would also back up this common thread among most matchmakers whether it's a totally secular matchmaker who is making a lots of money in Manhattan <laughs> or elsewhere um, or you know these matchmakers in um, different societies around the world it's, it always goes, a good match always goes back to that common background. Where did you grow up? What is your religion? What was your family like? What's your education level? Those basic kind of things that seem incredibly unromantic. But if we're thinking about whether or not matchmakers are successful or if matchmaking really works, um, if we look into our evolutionary past, I mean, human animals get together based on a thing called assortative mating, which essentially means like pairs up with like. Yeah, and this is, um, this isn't the spark. Yeah, this is the foundation, basically. The, the similarities you have, the, the way that you're going to go forward with the same values. And when all you are is caught up in the spark, maybe, or the sexual attraction of a relationship, you might miss the fact that the relationship you're in doesn't have a true foundation. Yeah, um, there was a study published in 2008 in the Journal of Evolutionary Psychology that talked to participants about their ideal 
partner and whether or not they were looking for qualities that were similar to them or complementary. And by and large, participants said that they wanted someone who was a similar personality. And they had, you know, you've got people often have their list of what Mr. or Ms. Wright looks like. Mm -hmm. And so they told the facilitators, you know, these lists of ideal traits. But when it came down to the actual type of person that they were looking for, it was more of a complementary partner than someone who was like them. And so the researchers are thinking with this, maybe we aren't so good at knowing what we really need. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we aren't. My mother would say I'm not good at knowing what I need. (laughs) Okay. So a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair. I can definitely relate to the confidence part because if my hair is doing something a little weird, something I don't want it to do, then I I can't stop thinking about it the rest of the day. Oh my God, we've all been there. Pantene's rosewater collection feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rosewater because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. Your hair doesn't look really great. Thank you. I actually worked in a place for a while that was very sensitive environmentally, and we weren't allowed to use shampoos that had sulfate in them. So that's something that I look for these days. And bonus, I love the way that my hair looks now. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. Here's the thing. Saving money with GEICO is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. But but then again, though, your mother, while she might be able to, on paper... Okay, point out all of those complementary traits, perhaps. Mm -hmm. That would work best for you. A 2012 analysis of online matchmaking that was published in the journal Psychological Science would say, you know what? Your mom might be able to pick someone good on paper, but she's not going to be able to find the spark. Yeah. Which in academic parlance, in the words of this 2012 study, it's referred to as relationship Aptitude. Yeah, it's how you are with other people. Yeah. And not even necessarily how you are with, like, the two of us together, but how you just are with people. Mm-hmm. Like, the way that Kristen Conger relates to people means that she... <laughs> <laughs> she just made a face. That's why I'm laughing. I'm I'm uh, I'm not having a problem. Um, means that she would be good with you know person X over person Y. Mm-hmm. Am I am I kind of hitting it there? Yeah. I mean, I think that's like uh, you know assortative mating when we think about that. Uh, look for someone if you want a good foundation. Look for someone who is kind of from the same place that you are in. Yeah. Or have been. That sounds really dreary and not so exciting. But you have to put on top of that relationship aptitude mm-hmm. that would push a friendship into a more romantic relationship. Yeah. And, and uh, it's defined, you know, just to give you a better idea, it's the constellation of traits, preferences, and personal history that makes a person more likely to have good relationships in general. 
And supposedly, these professional matchmakers are not only good at pairing up people on paper, but they supposedly have some kind of sixth sense for keying in on people's relationship aptitude and going that way, perhaps after some coaching and grooming. Yeah, no hot tub on the first date. That's right. Patty Sanger would say no sex before monogamy. But Patty Sanger also has lots of... uh, Ooh, very reductive uh, romantic advice that is yeah that says that men only like boobs and things hmm yeah well we won't go there yeah this time <laughs> in this episode <laughs> dun 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 <laughs> so there you have it uh, matchmaking it has happened it's one of the it's somewhat, I forget which article it was but they uh, described matchmaking as women's second oldest profession oh but um so Anyone who has played matchmaker, if you are a matchmaker, who has been set up successfully, we want to hear your matchmaking stories. I mean, do you think that people should, you know, keep their nose out of other people's romantic business? Or are friends better at setting us up or matchmakers perhaps better at setting us up than we might be? And let's hear the stories about the really bad dates, the blind dates. (laughs) You want the the bad blind (laughs) dates? I want the horror stories. Well, lots of stories to come. I hope momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send those good, bad, ugly, romantic, and terrifying tales of dating and matchmaking. And in the meantime, we have a couple of emails here from our episode on gender and heroism. Okay, well, I've got an email here from Mary, and she works with the EMS. And she says, the podcast got me thinking about our triage protocols. When resources are insufficient, we have to move on from some patients whose survivability is low and help where we can make the most difference. However, when faced with a child in peril, it's not uncommon for paramedics to work on a child with little chance of survival. Sometimes a situation which would result in an adult patient being classified as dead on arrival, when a child is in the same situation, EMS crews will transport. Once at the hospital, doctors, surgeons, janitors, nurses, and file clerks will drop everything to see if there is anything they can do to help a child whose death is inevitable, sometimes resulting in the diminished quality of care to adult patients. Even with training and protocols, these situations are difficult to avoid, especially in smaller hospitals, just one of the many challenges of practicing emergency medicine. That's an interesting inside look onto ER situations. Thank you, Mary. Okay, this is an email from Iskrin, uh, also on our Heroism podcast. Uh, it starts, I'd like to congratulate you on covering more deep and complex issues such as heroism. I'd like to offer a point of view which you, along with the rest of society, didn't touch on. Let me paint you a picture. Imagine a curvy road and two cars driving on it. The first car, occupied by one man, misses a turn and crashes. The second car, occupied by a couple, sees the accident and pulls over. The husband from the second car manages to pull out the driver of the first car and he calls for help. While the ambulance arrives, the wife holds the injured man's hand and comforts him. Later on, the medics arrive and save the life of the driver. That's a pretty standard scenario, and more than likely the next day there will be an article in the local newspaper exalting the couple and the medics on duty. At this point, most people consider the case closed. However, it is not. A day or so after the accident, an engineer is dispatched to the crash site with the task of assessing the situation and coming up with a plan to prevent future accidents. Over the course of a few weeks or months, safety measures like fences, signs, etc. are built that prevent cars from going off the road. 
One can argue that the engineer's work has saved an infinitely greater number of lives than the married couple and the medics. And yet, the local newspaper doesn't publish a follow-up article on the preventative measures taken. So here they are, the engineers, technicians, and scientists, the unsung heroes of our society. So thank you for that. And thanks to everyone who's written in. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send your letters. You can also find us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. And guess what? We've got something new for you to do as well. Ladies and gentlemen, we are on Tumblr. So if you would like to check out our blog over there, it's a lot of fun stuff. So join us, stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com is the URL. And, of course, if that's not enough for you, you can always head over to our home site. It's howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? So here's something that some of you might find shocking. 95% of women don't feel good about their hair. But Pantene is changing that. Pantene's Rosewater Collection combats bad hair days with an innovative formula that uses rosewater derived from the petals and buds of the Rosa Gallica plant. With Pantene's Rosewater Collection, I can really feel how much more hydrated my hair is. And it's sulfate, paraben dye, and mineral oil-free, which makes me feel good because who needs all those additives? Experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. The new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman are hilarious as America's favorite moms turned criminals. This show is the perfect blend of comedy, action, and romance. No wonder critics call Good Girls your next TV addiction. And Rotten Tomatoes rates it 100% fresh. Ooh, Good Girls, Sundays on NBC. The new season has already had some wild twists, so watch live. And stream anytime.